Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about nuclear power with our guest, Jeremy Carl, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of Keeping the Lights On at America's Nuclear Plants. Welcome to the program, Jeremy. Hi, pleasure to be with you. So just to set the stage for some of our guests who may not be as uh, up to date on what's happening in the energy markets, America's nuclear existing fleet uh, has had a lot of problems recently. There have been a lot of plant closures, etc. What is it that is causing so much trouble uh, and is making it hard for nuclear uh, in the electricity market? Well, it's kind of a perfect storm of things. I mean, you've had a combination of uh, increasing deregulation when a lot of these nuclear plants were designed to sort of compete in regulated markets. You've had the fracking revolution, which has overall been a great thing and has driven down the price of natural gas power. But that has uh, had negative competitive uh, dynamics vis-a-vis nuclear you have a situation in which a lot of these plants are older and therefore maybe needing maintenance. And so people are deciding uh, whether you're going to be renewing a license for a significant period of time. And, and unlike for other forms of energy, that's not a trivial decision. I mean, that's a, that's a decision that's involving hundreds of millions or a billion dollars or even more sometimes. And so you really need to make sure you get it right. So you combine all those things and then you combine that with uh, the sort of ongoing uh, anti-nuclear activity that we, we've had that's kind of always at a low boil and you've had renewables become increasingly affordable as a zero carbon option. And so it's, it's kind of a, a variety of all those factors have sort of come together and made things difficult for the existing nuclear fleet. I guess the, the obvious question is, you know, some of the factors that you cited are just kind of, you know, the nature of the case. Some of them are, are kind of perhaps unfair in terms of anti-nuclear protests or right. uh, or whatnot. But, you know, life isn't always fair. Uh, so, you know, the, the question is, why should we care about this, right? Uh, you know, if power plants uh, can't cut it, I mean, if it's unfair reasons, obviously people should stop that. But in the meantime, life goes on. And, uh, you know, if, if these plants close down, other plants will take their place and and uh, yada, yada, yada. What's the what's the big deal? Well, I'd say there's a couple reasons. I'd say one reason is you have to look at the, the climate issue. And if you don't care about climate or if you're skeptical of climate, I think that removes certainly one really big piece of the justification for uh, advocacy for nuclear. Um, but if you do think that at least climate, and I, I certainly I, I kind of fall into what's called the lukewarmist camp, of uh, climate change, and that I think it's it's uh, you know, some of the the problems are exaggerated, but I think it's certainly worth uh, worrying about and spending some time and energy to make sure that we avoid some of the potentially really bad consequences that have a possibility of of occurring. You know, if you sort of take that position, then you have a concern that you're taking off this massive, massive zero carbon resource. And in fact, the only really significant zero carbon baseload electricity resource uh, other than large hydropower, which doesn't really have any potential to grow at all. And uh, you're, you're sort of taking it away and you're replacing it. And this is what's in fact happened in California, although the government here does its best to disguise it with carbon sources. So I think that's that's one concern for, for a lot of people. I think another concern, so you know, what I say to people is, if you say that you are 
anti-nuclear. And I think I understand why people can feel that way. And, and there's, there's a host of issues why. But if you say that you're really, really, really concerned about climate and you're anti-nuclear, then I'm a little suspicious of anything else that you say about energy policy. You go beyond that, there is a strategic dimension. And I, and I point out these climate, uh, you know, the value that that brings of a zero carbon resource is not actually valued in the marketplace right now, which has been one of the big problems that nuclear has had. Then beyond that, there's the sort of strategic dimension of nuclear. And that gets kind of very complicated very quickly. But there's a bunch of things involving potential proliferation or just control of nuclear technologies that we have always found advantageous to have that ability in the U.S. And to the extent that we don't have a nuclear fleet here, we sort of degrade our capability domestically, which has, and really no other form of energy quite has this. I mean, that has both over the long run, and I don't want to conflate the technologies, but it does potentially have some impacts on our weapons deterrence over time. But even more simple things like the fact that we have a nuclear-powered Navy, and uh, that's really a core capability of our natural uh, national defense. And if we sort of give up the civilian nuclear piece, it's not really obvious how you keep the Navy piece going over the long term. So there's there's this variety of factors that I think make nuclear not uh, totally just like all the other forms of energy out there. So I want to pick on the environmental movement for a little bit, if that's all right with you. It's always all right with me. All right, good. Because, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, that uh, one of the chief reasons why you might care about nuclear is climate change, uh, which is, of course, true. It's a zero carbon source of energy. And there are some in the environmental movement that are pro-nuclear or that, you know, view nuclear power as part of the solution. James Hansen, uh, for example, the, uh, sure. the NASA scientist or whatever. But there's also a lot of you know opposition to nuclear power, even among the environmental movement. And even where you don't have explicit opposition, you have, I mean, the, the latest thing right now, for example, is 100% renewable energy mandates, right? Right. Uh, I, I got nothing against renewable energy, but if your concern is climate change, you would think that you would want to have, I'm not a big mandate guy, but if, if you don't care about that and you want to mandate zero carbon energy, it should be zero carbon energy, not just picking and choosing among that. So why do you think that there is such a deep ingrained anti-nuclear sentiment uh, among large sections of the environmental movement, even when, you know, I think they're sincere about caring about climate change, but it right. can't seem to get past it. Well, well, it is ingrained and it is highly hypocritical, as you kind of have outlined yourself. Um, some of it has to do with the origins. I mean, literally some of these groups have their origins in, in anti-nuclear activism uh, in the 1960s and 70s when there were a different set of environmental issues on the table. And then I think some of the folks, and I think of particularly people like my friends at uh, the Breakthrough Institute out here in the Bay Area have really gotten beyond that and, and been pro-nuclear advocates because I think they're just looking at it empirically. But look, politics is, is a tribal business. It really is. And, and you see that every day if, if you're looking at Washington. And the environmental tribe has just been an anti-nuclear tribe. And I think it's been really hard for them to kind of set that aside and look at the facts and realize that that nuclear is really got to kind of be it's, it's just really, 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 really hard to see how you make any sort of reasonable climate math work right now without nuclear. It doesn't mean impossible, but really, really hard. And there's a lot of this stuff about these 100% renewable mandates, but at least with the technology piece that we have right now, uh, it's just not realistic, uh, even if it were cost effective, which it's not. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of problems with that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who 
you know, are making a good living for themselves right now, shilling for that, but it just, the, the math just doesn't work. It just doesn't add up. And so, you know, really, if, if you care about zero carbon, nuclear has got to be a, a, at least a piece there over the short to medium term at the very least. And it's easy to promise to do something in 25, 30 years, you know. So. Right, right, of course. Why do, why do you think that nuclear power has trouble uh, competing in the marketplace? Well, there's a variety of things. One is that we're not valuing, again, it's it's carbon aspect. Uh, I mean, it's extremely relevant when you've got 30 states with an RPS where these where this renewable portfolio standards, in other words, uh, mandating a specific percentage that have to be uh, renewable, but you don't include nuclear as a zero carbon option in that. So that has impact in the marketplace. Furthermore, and this gets into really nerdy things about market dynamics in the electricity sector, but as you ratchet those up higher and higher through kind of an ill-advised policy in and of itself, there are various things that go on the marketplace that make the kind of steady kind of power that nuclear power offers even less attractive. Um, It's a sort of steady baseload power. And And the other thing that nuclear has a difficulty with is unlike natural gas, but like coal, uh, it doesn't quote unquote ramp up or ramp down really easily. So if you suddenly need to throw a bunch of nuclear or, or energy on the grid, nuclear is not the ideal resource for doing that. That having been said, we essentially don't do nuclear ramping at all in the US, but France, which has had the most aggressive nuclear sector, they do actually manage to ramp nuclear up and down. So those are essentially policy and technology choices that we've made. Secondly, is that you've got this very large regulatory piece. And obviously, we do want some of that to agree. I mean, if there's anything that you do want to regulate, it's obviously you know technology that if it's, it's misused has some very significant downsides. But I think right now you have a lot of um, incentives, and this is within the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and other folks, uh, and this this very much speaks to a lot of these new technologies, uh, new nuclear technologies getting on board at all. There's really a lot of incentive to just say no to, you know, put on regulation on top of regulation. Nobody's going to get fired for making things more a little bit more difficult. And so you just sort of have those factors combine and uh, it's made a difficult environment along with the deregulation of power when every you know, the rules of the game just changed. And typically, you know, in markets generally, when somebody goes into a highly regulated market under an understanding the regulation has, uh, you know, going to be in place, it's kind of considered bad form to change that regulation midstream. In other words, folks would normally be grandfathered in. But this is where, again, things get a little bit complicated because the state public power or the state power regulators often have least cost mandates um, that cause them to disregard some of these other elements or maybe even disregard some of their previous rulemaking. Uh, under which these projects were approved. So it quickly gets into a real morass, but I think all of those things touch on some of the competitive challenges that nuclear is having. Just as a, because this is completely new to me, but if if somebody wanted to go build a, a nuclear power plant right now, what's your estimate of how long it would actually take for the entire process, including the permitting and the actual construction, how long, just as an estimate, do you think that would actually take? Oh, oh gosh. Well, this is, I mean, when we get into new nuclear, it's even more problematic. And right now what we've seen is two plants, in one in Georgia and one in South Carolina, that have been had huge cost overruns, that have had huge delays. I think that they are ultimately going to get built, or at least one of them will probably get built, but but one of them may be canceled at, at billions of dollars of losses. So that's, that's a separate issue for new nuclear. And 
there's a lot of reasons, again, why that has happened. But one of them is actually, that's really almost foremost, has been the degradation of our capability of doing this domestically, simply because we really hadn't built any new nuclear plants since 1980. Um, and so the, the, the expertise, the skills, the machinery was all not there and kind of had to be recreated. It's not necessarily something that is inherent to nuclear technology per se. If you look at South Korea, if you look at China, places where there has been active nuclear power plant construction over the past few years, their uh, plants have largely been coming in on time and, and on budget or even under budget. But just the very nature of a nuclear power plant is this is not like a little science fair project. These are big, large, uh, multi-billion dollar industrial projects. And in many cases, and again, I think this has worked for why uh, we're seeing less uh, new nuclear build here. It's a kind of bet the company activity to build a new, because, it, because you're talking about billions of dollars to put in uh, a new plant. But again, that's separate from whether we keep these existing plants online. And these existing plants can really be quite competitive in a lot of markets. And if their their full attributes were valued, I'd argue that pretty much all of them, a couple exceptions maybe, would be would be fully competitive. Yeah. So I, I would like to talk a little bit more about, you know, what to do about the new nuclear, but you're right that there's a definite distinction between building new plants and what do we do with the existing plants that may be on a track towards early closure or closure before the right. end of their potential life or whatever. So theoretically, hypothetically, what are some things that if we wanted to keep some of these existing plants online, we could do that wouldn't degrade the whole regulatory market system that we have to the extent that we have it or break the, sure. the bank? Sure. And these are 50 different state markets. Well, you, you actually saw it in New York and Illinois, they ultimately did decide to essentially value those assets, the, the attributes that we talked about in nuclear. And they came up with very complicated formulas that I don't want to bore the audience with. But essentially, by crediting the nuclear plants with um, some of the very real benefits they have. And by the way, even though this is not something that I would consider a benefit uh, per se, I think another significant piece in these nuclear deals that were made in these states was the jobs element of, of nuclear and that you were talking about throwing thousands of people out of work. I mean, I don't consider that irrelevant, but ultimately, you know, states need to make rational decisions. But that was, I think, another piece that, that really weighed heavily there. The problem with doing that and why I would love to see a more national national approach, and the, the administration has made some feints in that direction, is that you're essentially asking the residents of one state to pick up the tab for some public benefits that are national and even global. And so it's not entirely fair to the ratepayers to just stick that in, in one state. It would really be much better if we acknowledged, hey, these benefits are national, these benefits are global, and that we're going to at least have a national policy by which we pay for them. Again, the, the Trump administration pushed something through FERC that they had tried to get through, that's Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that essentially said nuclear and coal have some baseload electricity value. And we're going to sort of recognize that value. And they went through this resilience value. And for a variety of reasons, FERC ultimately ended up rejecting that argument, not because they um, inherently rejected some of the underlying premises, but for some sort of more technical reasons. And that involved also the what I think for the nuclear industry was a, a bad strategic decision for them to kind of twin themselves with coal. The, the proposal was, oh, if you have 90 days worth of fuel, then, then we'll help you a little bit hard 
to justify that particular, you know, why, why having 90 days of fuel in particular is something that was so valuable? Well, I think the administration, I mean, quite frankly, what was, the, again, just the motivator, just as jobs ended up, I think, being a big part of the state initiatives. You note the 90 days requirement. I mean, really what this was, was a fig leaf. The administration felt like they had support in coal country and they wanted to be seen as doing something to deliver for them. And I think nuclear kind of went along for the ride. It would not have been the way that um, I would have chosen to justify it. But again, the administration also sort of staked out a more skeptical position on climate, so they couldn't really make an argument vis-a-vis that for nuclear. And obviously, that wouldn't be a good argument for coal <laughs> in any case. You, you had you had to sort of make these arguments that weren't particularly effective arguments um, in order to get somewhere that you want to do. And look, I mean, this is politics, right? I'm not going to blame the administration for trying, but I think they're going to have to try a little bit harder if they really want to have some success with that. Historically, it's been kind of a weird industry in that normally, as the industry progresses and develops, the costs come down, right? You know, the first computer is, right. you know, as big as a as a building and, you know, uh, can't do anything and costs, you know, a million dollars. And today you have a computer that's millions of times more powerful that you could buy for a couple hundred bucks and fit in your pocket. And for nuclear, it seems as you go on, actually uh, building plants becomes more expensive. So obviously that's, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily true. It's not, it's true of the United States, maybe not other countries like South Korea, but you think that we can do to alter that and to make nuclear get on the downward sloping cost curve that you kind of need to, if it's going to be a major, major thing. Well, I I think when it comes to new nuclear, um, the... The issue is, and sort of South, the, the sort of South Carolina and Georgia plants are are sort of the paradigm of this. I mean, we're not going to go build big new plants like this, at least in the U.S. anymore. It's just, it's not, it doesn't make sense, most likely. But you know, barring some real revelation on the cost side from a financial perspective, but that does lead to a bunch of really interesting new technologies that are out there. And many of the, these technologies are what's called passively safe. What that means is effectively, one never likes to use the word never in science and engineering, but they effectively, you know, they can't have one of these, you know, even if they lost all their power, they couldn't melt down, you know, any of these kind of disaster scenarios that people worry about essentially are, are almost completely off the table with some of these new technologies. And so to the extent that you sort of feel like a not entirely rational fear, but maybe rational in some cases fear of kind of existing technologies is out there, some of these new technologies could be real game changers in that regard. And they can also, what's called SMRs, you have these things out called small modular reactors. Again, you know, they're going to generate less power, but they also cost a lot less. So they're not necessarily bet the company propositions. The problem these have, and and you've just sort of touched on it, is the first of a kind of these is going to be expensive. I mean, that's just the way these things are. And I think particularly for nuclear, where you have to go through this very, very intensive design and approval process for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to get anything going. It just is, it's a really difficult lift to get the first of a kind built. In fact, it kind of is remarkable to me, um, just the, the very significant amount of stuff that is being, you know, venture funded, worked on, patented. I mean, there really are a number of companies working on this in a quite substantial way, despite all of the the roadblocks that I think the government has really put up to making this happen in a frankly pretty unfriendly regulatory environment. 
Sort of as a follow-up question, um, once a new plant is built, whether it's a publicly financed or privately financed, do you have any sense of how long it would take to get a return on investment? You know, that's a great question, but it's just not one that I could really answer. I'm just not on the inside with these things. It also depends on whether you're talking about one of these very large kind of legacy technologies or, or new technology. I think you know, some of this just depends on what's your feeling about any type of industrial policy. If you totally reject all forms of industrial policy under any circumstances, then you're never going to be able to justify something like this, uh, even as a, certainly as a first of a kind. If you think that, you know, for a variety of reasons, probably climate being highest among them, that there's, you know, or, te- or technology diversity. I mean, there's another thing that we've talked about that's not uh, valued. That's a pretty key, purely economic element of nuclear, which is natural gas is really cheap right now. And it's taken over a huge share of the market. But natural gas was four or five X this price uh, 10, 15 years ago. So, uh, just as just with your investments, you have a portfolio approach, and you have some that are higher risk and higher volatility, but offer higher returns. And then you have others that are lower risk and lower volatility, maybe don't offer as good returns, but you want them as a piece of your portfolio. Nuclear, which has a kind of very predictable fuel price, more or less, and in any case, fuel not being a really big component of cost has that advantage as part of a portfolio. The concern with just chasing what's cheap right now, and this is the problem with these least cost regulations that often exist in many states is, so you find, you you kind of do the math and right now natural gas is the cheapest. And so you go build a bunch of natural gas plants and you shut down coal, you shut down nuclear, you, you don't build a bunch of other things. And then all of a sudden natural gas prices could go up four or five X at some point in the future, and you're left with a thing that from a purely economic perspective becomes a little bit of a white elephant. So, you know, I think that's that's an important piece to mention when we talk about nuclear. For some of these smaller plants, you could obviously, I think, get a return a little bit quicker, um, but you're not going to be getting them on a first of a kind, you're going to be getting them on a tenth of a kind type plant. And so that's, I think, again, the challenge for getting some of this new stuff built. Okay, so uh, I'm going to switch gears here at the end. Uh, we're going to talk about something totally different, as they, as they used to say on the, on the old Monty Python show. One thing that we've talked about periodically on the show has been people getting banned or suspended from Twitter. I, I'm not going to go through all yeah. the cases, everyone who's knows the cases. Uh, right. And, you know, the, the general perspective that I think our uh, guests have had about it is, well, you know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, these are private companies. Uh, they can ban who they want, you know, for whatever yeah. reason or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Government shouldn't be involved. You wrote an article not too long ago for The Federalist taking a different view. Uh, so I, I wondered if you could just set forward what that is and and why you why you don't think that that uh, argument is persuasive. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I, I, a lot of people on the right are making this argument. Although I think increasingly my argument is getting more, a lot more support, uh, if, if not majority support at this point. And I think it's it's just these kind of oh, Facebook's a private company. They're just bad arguments, and they're by people who, frankly, don't really, in most cases, even know or understand the tech business. And I have to kind of back up a little bit here. I started out my career in the tech business. I was an Internet 1.0 guy. I did some of the first stuff ever on politics in the internet. Um, So I've sort of, I'm a little bit of a get off my lawn guy to some of the young people uh, who work on this issue, because I'm like, you know, while you were probably in diapers, I was working on some of these tech politics issues. So uh, having said that, we don't make arguments from authority, we should actually make them by making the arguments. So let me go ahead and make mine. 
you know, essentially these are monopolies, or if they're not monopolies, they're oligopolies. And if Facebook had 10% of market share, I wouldn't really care what they did. They can run their platform how they want. If Facebook or Google has 90% share, I care a lot about what they do. And monopoly regulation has always been a part of government. And we can argue about how effectively we've done that at times. I'm happy to have that argument. And I'm not suggesting that in in all cases, it's easy to do. But certainly, I come from the school, uh, one of the early founders of a group called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, really a group mostly on the left, but kind of dedicated to internet freedom, they're pretty libertarian, um, was that the internet treats censorship as damage and routes around it. And I used to think that that was basically the case. And what we've increasingly found is that at least for conservatives, that's no longer the case. And we're seeing folks banned. We're seeing folks be deplatformed. We're seeing certain types of speech be disallowed. And I think the even more problematic element of this, that again, a lot of the people making the, hey, it's just a private company argument, just don't understand at all, is that in many cases, the way these companies were able to build their platforms was through something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, And the Communications Decency Act was a Clinton-era regulation that was attempting to sort of look at uh, everything from copyright infringement to obscenity and other things on the internet. And what Section 230 essentially said was, hey, if you're a a kind of tech company platform, a YouTube, a Facebook, or whatever, you're not not liable for if people put copyright infringing materials or or things like that on your um, platform. But the exchange for that is you basically can't act like publishers. So you can't kind of pick and choose. You can't be censors. And what we've increasingly found is that, of course, YouTube and all these other guys, they're happy to say, oh, we can't be responsible. We're We're just a dumb platform when they use that to build their business. And now that they are censoring conservatives left and right, um, that they've sort of conveniently forgotten how the government advantages that they were given to build their businesses and that those came with some strings attached. So I'm just, I'm a person who believes in maximum freedom on the internet, barring things that are illegal under the First Amendment. And I just, I'd rather give the power to control what people see into users' hands. And I think it's really pretty simple um, for you to design a, uh, a platform which gives users control over not having content that they don't want to see in front of them and that doesn't censor content that people do want to see. Just in terms of, and, and I, you know, I would say, you know, monopoly, uh, I think is an issue that's important. I know, you know, there used to be, there used to be what they call company towns, right? Where you're in a city, but actually everything was owned by sure. this one company. Uh, yeah. Legally speaking, you could get into some similar things that look like suppressing speech, but then they would say, well, yeah. we're actually, the the town is actually a private company. So uh, we can do, this doesn't ar- uh, run afoul of the First Amendment. And there's uh, all sorts of case law involved in that. Well, right. And as I said, I mean, there's an important Supreme Court case that you may be aware of in which the Supreme Court basically went to a company town and said, uh, actually, you know what, even though you're a company town, First Amendment still applies. And uh, I think that very much is applicable here. And what's more, I just the, the incongruity of the Twitter CEO kind of getting up and calling their space the public square, which he did re- several times in recent testimony, but then suggesting that speech should not be allowed there is just, I, I would think it's very problematic um, yeah. you know, under and, any and number so of just, but just in terms of responses, obviously, you know, occasionally I will see people on social media say, well, you know, the, these tech companies are, you know, Facebook or Twitter, they're monopolies, they should be broken up. And I can see how you would break up like a car company or a phone company or whatever. 
the the value yeah. of a platform like Facebook is entirely derived from the fact that everybody is on the same platform. So I don't breaking it up obviously isn't really an option. And yeah, I, I don't like people talk about well, you could regulate it like a public utility. I don't know what that means either. So I mean, what what would you yeah. what would you want to see happen? Would it just be open access rules, uh, uh, that sort of thing, or? I think open access rules would generally be the way to go. I mean, there's there's a number of people who've sort of thought through in, in more detail than I have and have actually put forth some, I think, fairly intelligent proposals for, you know, how you might kind of do that. But I'd say in general, that's, that's what I'd favor. Having said that, while I'm not advocating for the breakup of these companies, you could do things like disaggregate Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. I mean, there's, it's not impossible that you could look in or, or disaggregate Google search from any number of other Google things. And I should add, you know, I have some perspective on this. I was back in the internet 1.0 days. I was at a company called Real Networks uh, that sort of pioneered audio and video streaming on the internet. So kind of the predecessor to everything we're doing here today. And um, we ended up winning a, a billion plus dollar uh, judgment against Microsoft for their kind of illegal bundling uh, with their pl- Windows platform, which at that point had 90 plus percent share. Now, unfortunately, even with a billion plus dollar penalty that Microsoft just viewed that as a cost of doing business and was essentially able to, over the long term, freeze us out. But it does show that you have to get really, really serious with these guys to get them to pay any attention. And right now, the problem I think that we have is that big tech is simply abusing uh, the rights of conservatives because they don't see a lot of downside threat. They don't see that they're going to be held accountable. Um, so I think, uh, in general, that's that's the problem we're facing. But, but yes, I mean, I think you just have open access. You could even do things where if, if you want them to have an editorial piece that that's involved with this, I mean, you could imagine doing something where you had a button on Twitter or Facebook that basically says, I don't want to see anything that is classified by the editors at Twitter and, and Facebook. And believe me, that's what they have right now as fake news. So I don't see that in my feed. Now that even still gives more power than I'd like to a Facebook or a Twitter, but it's a pretty easy way of getting something where you don't censor people per se, people who want to communicate with each other still can, but you still uh, kind of eliminate some of the the maybe negative things that people uh, are saying they're concerned about on the platform. So I, I think that this is rocket science. You're never going to, not, not, not rocket science, rather, you're never going to have a case that is perfectly appealing to everybody, but we can do a lot better than we're doing right now. And by the way, I mean, I should also add, I have some insider information here as somebody who lives in Silicon Valley and has talked to some of the dissonant engineers at these companies. It's much, much worse than what is publicly in the media right now as far as the censorship of conservatives, the tilting of the playing field politically against conservatives. If you want to go look at Robert Epstein's work as a psychologist who used to add psychology today, just about the, you know, publishing the National Academy of Sciences about the amount of political manipulation uh, that is working against conservatives right now. It is much, much, much worse than is publicly uh, out there right now. And something every conservative, frankly, every American, but certainly every conservative should be concerned about. Well, so if you're on, for instance, Twitter, you have the ability to mute accounts, block accounts. What else is missing that, that you don't have enough control over your own account? Well, I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I don't necessarily see the need for a million more layers, right? I, I think that people can generally protect themselves. But, you know, let's just say, again, I, I'm just hypothesizing. If I, if I take the 
Twitter concerns that the management would say seriously and take them as being made in good faith. So fine, you know, if I'm doing politically controversial content in some way as identified by Facebook or Twitter, I have to identify myself in that way. And then an end user can just say, hey, I want to avoid being tweeted at by anybody who does politically controversial content or has that label, or maybe it's politically controversial content on the right, right. I don't want to see it, right? There's, there's all sorts of ways in which with just a couple other tweaked settings, um, Alan Bakari at Breitbart, who's really been one of the best tech reporters on this issue, has, has he wrote an article with some proposed ways that you could could do that. And again, I just it, it, to me, it's all about giving power to the users rather than a bunch of monolithically left, left-wing companies with totally opaque uh, decision procedures for you know, who gets to be on the internet and who doesn't. Um, to me, the whole value of the internet is that it's not just ABC and NBC and CBS, which is what it was when I was a kid, get to decide what I get to see, what information is available to me. So, for instance, back to Twitter, uh, you know, they recently permanently suspended Jesse Kelly, who I just yep. saw, saw his account this morning. Uh, they rectified that pretty quickly. Uh, if you want to say if you want to say rectify, I mean, uh, he actually wrote articles that you could say he was glorifying violence. So there's an interpretation there whether that fit community standards. So yeah. should that be something that the government decides? Is that something that only Twitter should decide? Where do you come down on that? And and I you know I'd like to point out that. Jesse Kelly was reinstated in something like 36 to 48 hours. I've never seen the federal government move that quickly on anything. Yeah. Well, so I mean, the, the issue of reinstatement is interesting, right? But I mean, so Jesse was fortunate in that he, you know, they, of course, Twitter doesn't know who the heck he is because those, they're all leftists there. And, you know, he might as well be the man from the moon. But they happened to pick out a guy with a lot of friends in high places in the conservative movement. And so we were able to get that reversed, fortunately. Um, although, of course, that has a chilling effect on his future speech. Don't be fooled, right? I mean, he's sort of... He sort of sees where that goes. Um, again, I just take a maximalist approach of if it doesn't violate the First Amendment, as identified by a U.S. court, it ought to be allowed on these monopoly platforms. And so I'd put the burden of proof on the other foot. Now, you know, could we imagine that a court agrees that this is, you know, that this person has violated First Amendment standards? I mean. To do that, right, like to even take it to court and to get a judgment is a much, much higher bar than some clown at, you know, Twitter, trust and safety, just deciding he doesn't like you that day. Um, but, but you know, even if you got there, so it might take a little longer to, to get back off, but I think you'd make the bar so much higher that it would be worth it. And I'd point out, it's not just, we're focusing right now on social media, um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's really these edge providers that are just as concerning because what, what a lot of the more pro-market people have said, oh, well, you know, you just go create an alternate platform, fine. Um, if you follow the experiences of people who've tried to create alternatives to Patreon, to Twitter, to Facebook, what's increasingly happening is at the payment processor level or at the the, the network hosting or, or kind of what's called Cloudflare, people who kind of keep you from denial of service attacks, they're getting involved in saying, well, we're not going to be willing to protect some of these uh, sites or, or unpopular speakers. And so now you get a pers- perspective of you've got to build a whole new global payment system just to be 
effectively on the internet and have your voice out there. Well, suddenly that that's a much higher bar to jump through. So again, this kind of very naive notion that's advanced by people who honestly have no background in tech in most cases of just assuming that, well, the market's going to take care of it. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, I say this, I'm, I'm coming from the background of being a pretty libertarian type tech guy. That was the, the world that I came from. So when I say this, and I say that we need to regulate monopolies. It's not because I'm just in love with, you know, boy, government's such a great regulator, but it's just, it kind of reminds me, um, William F. Buckley once said that we shouldn't kind of morally equate somebody who pushes a little old lady out of the way of a screaming bus and it pushes a person who pushes a little old lady into the path of a screaming uh, bus on the grounds that they're both pushing around little old ladies. Well, you know, somebody that, has a, a very clear government mandate that we're not getting in the censorship business and you're not going to be allowed to do that as a, uh, a monopoly social media platform. To me, that strikes me as a very different form of regulation than the government saying, well, we are going to regulate you and you have to do it in X and Y and Z way. And I think obviously the latter would be a very mistaken way to go about things. But don't you think that there's a, a risk at once the government gets into this that whatever rules are put in place could be reinterpreted. Uh, for instance, I, th I think that there's some probably some analogies there on, uh, on for instance, uh, something that I'm a little bit more familiar with, uh, trade expansion and national security tariffs, where once there's some rules in place, somebody with a completely opposite point of view than what you're expressing could come in and use the uh, the tools of government to start regulating speech. You know, I can't, I mean, obviously there's hypotheticals out there. Anybody who's watched the violence that the left has done to the constitution over the past, you know, this is obviously my opinion now out of the last 60 or 70 years would be remiss to kind of dismiss that sort of thing out of hand. I guess I'd say two things. One, it's so bad right now and it's disadvantaging, particularly folks on the right so badly right now that kind of consideration of these hypotheticals is a little bit secondary to me. It's not that I'm dismissing it. I'm just saying it's it's secondary. And I think that if you write the regulation in such a way that it's basically saying, if you haven't broken the First Amendment as said by a court, then you're okay to be on these social media services, period. You're also, you know, you can't be denied from monopoly payment processors, period. The left will never cease to amaze you with their ingenuity of inverting the very plain words of a statute. But I think you've raised the bar for them to do that, not lowered it by kind of doing something that's All really right. well, clean. This is obviously like a big that. topic, uh, and I don't want to overwhelm the, the nuclear discussion or whatever. I've taken enough of your time. But it's been very enlightening. Thank you, Jeremy, very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.